You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. How many people here know the gospel of Jesus is kind of important? Yeah? Well, one of the greatest voices on planet Earth is going to read us a selection (laughs) from the gospel right now. A reading from Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. So yes, I uh, was interested when this was the lectionary text for this week, uh, the parable. This is one of the few moments where God calls somebody a fool. And you're like, that's not... If you, God, if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all. And he's like, don't tell me what to do. Fool. Like, okay, I tried. Let's start with this. We're still in our series on summer apocalypse, and we're still moving our way out of thinking that, and people around you will tell you that, all of these bad things happening are because Jesus is getting ready to return to the earth. And it is important for us to remind ourselves and to remind those people that the reason why bad things are happening is not because we should be getting excited because Jesus could come back and therefore we accidentally root for bad things to happen, but that we realize that bad things are happening because the world needs healing. Amen? And we want Jesus to come however he wants to do that to bring awareness and healing to the world. That's what has to happen, and it starts in your heart, and it starts in my heart, and in my home, and in your home. And so what we've been saying this whole summer is, if there is such thing as the end times, let there be the end times of those things in me that war against the ways of Jesus. I want my sinful self to be in its last days, in its end times. Okay? I hope we agree. So, what is happening in the world is serving to show us what is happening in our own self. When you go to the gas pump, and now you have to have a credit check to fill up your gas tank, because it's $6,087 to fill up the tank with 87. Can they just come up with like a 79 octane and then maybe that would be $3 a gallon? But in those moments where you're at the end of the month, you're doing breakfast for dinner because you're waiting to get paid on the first, you're getting a little sick and tired of pancakes and eggs, and now you gotta fill up and you were trying to wait to fill up on August 2nd, but you needed to fill up to get here today. And so before you came to church, you spent $63 on gas. That moment, that next thing you say, that thought you have, it's an apocalypse. It's revealing what's in us. It's showing us, are there rats in the basement? The first things that we say are the most true sense of who we really are. I hate that. I hope that's not true what I just said, but I fear that it is. That first reaction, if you've ever said to somebody, sorry I reacted that way, you caught me at a bad moment, I wasn't thinking. That moment when you weren't prepared, that's the real you. (laughs) The moments where we are prepared, 
that's the fake us. When you, by the time, when you have a chance to get the Halloween costume on and then respond to a situation, like you're a, like, what did you, Jacqueline just be like, what did you dress up like today? A well put together, calm person? <laughs> like, those first responses to another request at work on Friday at 4.45 p.m., that response two minutes before you leave the office and you got to do something because one of your coworkers doesn't do anything and they boast about the fact that they don't do anything and now you're stuck doing it and because you got the spirit in you and a good conscience, you have to do it because you know it's the right thing to do and you say words that begin with letters like S and F and things like that. Fries. Those are the, that's, an, that's the apocalypse God cares about. He doesn't care about the TV apocalypse with mushroom clouds and tanks and guns. He cares about us realizing in the moment that reaction I had, that's the real me, and that's where healing needs to happen. And so here's an initial, this is just the, the, the first, this is the warning shot of the sermon today. In all situations, before you ask, how do I fix this? Ask what is this revealing about me that needs healing? Even if you're right. Nay, especially if you're right. If you're right and you have turned into Oscar the Grouch because you're right, ask the Holy Spirit for the character of Jesus who was always right and was never Oscar the Grouch. We do our worst work when we're right. Probably because it surprises us that we're actually right. This is my biggest struggle as a husband. Once in a while, I'm right. And I don't know what to do with myself anymore. It's like if you watch a football game, sometimes uh, you know, uh, the running back will catch the ball and turn and no one will be there, probably because they're playing against the Giants' defense, and no one will be there, and for a split second, they don't know what to do because they thought they were about to get hit. They didn't realize you could be this wide open. They should have because they're playing the New York Giants, who probably has four men on the field. Long story. I have issues. But sometimes when we're right, we are surprised. I'm right. And we fumble because we're not good at being right. But we do our worst work when we're right and we know we are and somebody else is wrong and we know they are, in those moments, that's when we need to say, before we think about where do they need to be fixed, what is this response revealing about me that needs to be healed? How can I be right and humble at the same time? How can I be right and still be a servant at the same time? How can I be right and not point out the wrong right away? Or maybe ever. These are just the things I'm learning. You learn whatever else you want. Last week, we learned what prayer is. Last week, we learned about prayer. Listen to last week's sermon. It's really good. We learned about prayer, and we learned about the way that Jesus prays, and we learned about the way that he teaches us to pray. This week, this parable that Jesus told, this is a parable about the wrong way to pray. This parable is about a man who didn't know how to pray, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, and we see the devastating effects of not knowing or, or not praying the way that we ought to pray. But here's the thing. Next week, next Sunday, this is how the text is going to begin next Sunday. When I stand up here one week from right now, this is what we are going to hear. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Next week, we are going to hear Jesus say, Don't be anxious. And so last week was about the right way to pray. This week is about seeing the wrong way to pray. Next week is about the healing that can come into our life when we learn to ask for the Holy Spirit more than anything else and how the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the soothing of anxiety. So 
We need to hear this part now. We need to hear the wrong way to pray, not for condemnation, but because of this. Whenever Jesus knows that we're doing something wrong, he tells a story so that we don't feel condemned. He tells a story so that in the story, we could see the way that we're doing it wrong. And the fact that he's telling the story at all is what heals us. When God says, let there be light, there's... And so when the master of the universe tells a story, he's always the creator and the redeemer at the exact same time. So whenever Jesus is creating, he's redeeming. And whenever he's redeeming, he's creating. And whenever he's speaking, he's redeeming and creating. So when you hear the Bible read, when you hear the Bible preached, it's already healing for you. So let's Let's look at the prayer preview from last week first because we need to remember how are we supposed to pray. Number one, we need to hear Jesus pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray after they heard Jesus pray. And so we need to hear Jesus pray. How do we hear Jesus pray? We hear him pray by reading our Bible. Every page of every scripture is us hearing Jesus pray. John, take that baby out so Stephanie could be in the service for a minute and get a break. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I wasn't kidding, Steph. You can tell him to leave with the baby. We hear Jesus pray. (laughs) I love John. We hear Jesus pray by reading the history of the church's prayers all through the various seasons. And I told you last week, you don't need to be a scholar. You have Siri. You can ask Siri. Siri knows probably more than we do about stuff. And you can ask Siri about prayers. Like we said, somebody texted me and said, Pastor, thank you so much for reminding us to read prayers during the season of the Underground Railroad. And they sent me a few of them, and they're amazing. So we read the Bible. It's how we hear Jesus pray. We read written prayers that were written in various seasons of the church, and we hear Jesus pray. We heard Jesus pray today when Doreen sang, when Kerry sang, when Krista sang, when Jen sang. We heard Jesus pray when John played, when Rob played, when Frank played. We hear Jesus pray whenever somebody gives a word. We hear Jesus pray when we hear each other pray. And then we hear Jesus pray when he groans within us. We have to hear Jesus pray. How does Jesus tell us to pray? He tells us to pray his prayer, the Lord's prayer, the Our Father, which is a liturgical prayer where he tells you what words to use and when to use them and in what order to use them. And then he also tells us that we're to be reckless in our prayer. So he says, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he says, but also when you pray, bang on my door and don't stop until I answer you. One, some of us are inclined to the reckless kind of prayer, and we need to learn the liturgical kind. Some of us are good with the liturgical kind, and we need to learn the reckless kind. Don't let your personality dictate everything. Let your personality send you into the deep in one way, but also learn and broaden and strengthen other muscles. And then he tells us what to ask for. If you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask? And so think about everything you've prayed for and write it down and then write down every time you think to even ask for the Holy Spirit and see what is more, stuff or the Holy Spirit? Things, circumstances, or the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit is so humble He waits until he's invited. Behold, I stand at the door and I'll wait all day. Jesus is like, is that person still there? Shut the lights. Why is it important to know that we're supposed to pray like children and be reckless and also learn the way that Jesus prays? Because in this story, which we will talk about very quickly, we see the wrong way to pray and what it does to our soul. Someone in the crowd yells out to Jesus' teaching, and someone yells out, tell my brother to divide the property. And Jesus looks at this person, 
and says one of the most packed sentences in all of Scripture. He says, man, or in another translation, he says, friend. Some wonder if it was Judas who hid in the crowd and asked a question. And then at the end of the gospel, when Jesus calls Judas friend, Judas realizes you knew it was me the whole time, didn't you? But anyway, that's besides the point. Tell my brother to divide the property, the money, the inheritance evenly. And Jesus says, man, who made me judge and arbiter over you? Now pause. Jesus just asked a really good question. Let's see if we know the answers. Who made Jesus judge over us? The Father. There's an answer to that question. Jesus is super sneaky, though. He says, who made me judge over you? Your dad. Who made me arbiter over you? No one. He is judge over us. But he's not arbiter over us. And this is so important. This is so important. Has anybody watched the ESPN Plus documentary on Derek Jeter? I watched it. And just so everybody knows, because people judge me about what I say about the Mets, I bought Ron Green Yankee tickets for his birthday because that's how much I love the man. So if I can give that much and go to that lowly of a place because I love somebody, how much more should we be doing for the world around us? I mean, I'm going to need a prayer team here to hold me up while I go to Sodom and Gomorrah to watch a baseball game. They played each other recently, didn't they? Hmm. Oh, my God. It's so sad. It's so sad. In this documentary called The Captain, which, as much as I cannot stand the New York Yankees, love, love me some Derek Jeter for a lot of reasons, at one point, he has to go to arbitration because he was being offered, and this is a long time ago, he was being offered something like 2.5 or $3 million, and he wanted $5.5 million. And he had to go to arbitration, and in arbitration, he said the worst part about arbitration is because you're now hearing your team tell you why they don't think you're worth what you're asking for. And what we do with God all the time is we ask him to be in arbitration. We ask God to tell other people how they're not worth the decisions that they're making. Show them that the decisions they're making are less valuable than the decisions they can be making. Tell, tell them to treat me better. Tell them to love me better. Tell them this. Tell them that. And here's what is being revealed. We, we want the gospel to be something that we can use to make life happen for us the way we want it to happen. And Jesus says no. Every time. Jesus is here to be judge. He's not here to be uh, somebody to take us into arbitration. He's not here to decide disputes between different people. He's here to judge both people. Now, when we hear Jesus as judge, we think, oh, God, here comes another one of those sermons. Here's the problem. We don't understand judgment from Jesus' perspective. All we know is judgment from ours, and we apply that to Jesus. We judge people for being wrong, and we're wrong for being judgmental because we don't really know when somebody else is wrong or not. We assume that Jesus can point out wrongs because he's always right about pointing out wrongs. That's not how his judgment works. There's a reason why the Jewish people beg for God's judgment, and Christians cower when we hear that God is coming to judge. Why? Because they have a better understanding about judgmentalism than we do. When God judges, he makes everything he judges right. When God judges, the Redeemer is judging. When God judges, the Lamb of God that takes away the, of the world is judging. When he judges and points out a wrong, it's the same thing that when he puts his hand on a leper. What happens to the leprosy? We want to be judged by him. We need to be judged by him. 
I'm begging him to judge me every day because when his hand of judgment touches my life, like leprosy, my life is healed. Our judgment needs to be healed so it can be like his judgment. Quiet down and stop clapping. I have more points to make. This makes some of us uncomfortable because we want a God who always points out wrongs and punishes every wrong so that we can control ourselves and other people. We don't know what to do with a God who when he's wrathful towards you and he punishes you, what is the point of punishing somebody? To correct them. Does God, does anything God does fail? So when God punishes, he punishes to correct. So when he punishes Will his punishment fail? So then the ones he punishes will be, imagine. I'm going to let that float out there like I have 100,000 other times. Jesus says, I'm not here to arbitrate, which is what so much of our theology is rooted in, a God of arbitration. Our theology is rooted in a healer who's also judge. A creator who's also redeemer who's also judge. The one you want to be elected as judge is Jesus. Because when he judges criminals, criminals are healed from being criminal. The jails are empty, not because he doesn't convict people, but because he heals them. It makes me emotional and excited to understand a love that truly knows no bounds and has no conditions. I will spend the rest of my darn little life trying to convey this to everybody who will listen. Thank you, Dan Cahill. He's judge. Why? Because the one man who's saying, tell my brother to divide the inheritance, my brother's the worst. He's greedy. Jesus says, I'm not your arbiter. Both of you have fallen into covetousness. He, con he condemns both the brother who won't sell the property and the brother who's lusting after the property that won't be sold to him. Because what Jesus sees is not property. Jesus sees brothers who have had a falling out. And Jesus is upset, not because somebody's withholding property, but because those brothers aren't desiring to be reconciled. They both care more about the property than each other. What we should read when we read the story is two brothers used to be close and now they're not anymore over this property. And Jesus is saying, I'm judging this entire situation with a parable because what you both should want is each other more than the property. Because he's a God who doesn't care about what happens to my 401k. He cares about what happens with my heart towards you. That's what he cares about. Remember, prayer is not asking for things, but asking for the spirit who reconciles, who brings things back together again. What Jesus hears when he is, tell my brother. One guy is so incensed. My brother's being unfair. And the brother who's not even there is like, I know, I, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. And Jesus says, I don't care about the property. I care that you don't care about the reconciliation. So, he tells a story. The land produced, and a man's field produced abundantly. And right away, we think, this man must have been obedient because God was blessing his land. Jesus is a master. He's strategic. He tells the story of a man who everyone's going to think lived the right way. His land was producing abundantly. Surely he followed all the biblical principles. Surely he tithed on the gross, gave to the poor, gave to Matthew Thomas. Surely he did all the right things. And for the rest of the story, Jesus shows us that this man is anything but right. Because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And rain in our culture is a negative thing, but rain in a desert where Jesus was telling his parable is blessing. No one there was ever praying, please let it not rain. 
They were praying, please let it rain. And Jesus said, the rain falls on the just, and they're like, we know. And the unjust, wait a minute. Them? So just because it's all working out, just because you're living the American dream, doesn't mean that your heart is right at all. And just because you're down and out doesn't mean that God isn't looking at you saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because we're not to judge our worth by how well life is working out for us. The man says, what shall I do? I know. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I will say to my soul, soul, you now have ample goods for a long time. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the main point I want to make. It's not really, it's not a super attractive point. But self-talk is not prayer. Telling yourself things and believing it is a problem. It's not prayer. It's a P word. They both start with P. So you have that going. Problem. When you, tell, when you say, I'm going to tell myself, I know my wife is saying I didn't do enough, but I know I did. Soul, you're a bad man. Soul, you were right in this situation. Stop listening to yourself. I'm just being funny, but we tell ourselves, we get anxiety, and we tell ourselves things that we know will calm ourselves down, even if those things are not right. And then we start living off of the theology of self-talk. And then we start accumulating resources around us that confirm our own personal bias, self-talk. And then we start feeling real energized because I have found resources that confirm the stuff I say to myself, and now I know Jesus is talking to me. That is the longest slow clap in the history. But listen, I, this, is why, this is why I would never want to preach to anybody else, because we are so real here. Like, we all do this all the time. We talk to ourselves. And here's the flip side. Some of us, when we do self-talk, we say horrible things about ourselves and believe them as much as the people who say wonderful things about themselves and believe that. We convince ourselves we're not worthy. We convince ourselves that we need to do so many good things to make up for all the bad things. We convince ourselves that we shouldn't try hard because every time I try hard, I self-sabotage. Soul, don't desire good anymore. Soul, don't desire larger barns. Soul, I'm, some of us are like, I'm going to tear down my barns and build smaller ones. Like, some of us do that. Self-talk is where Satan lurks. Self-talk is where the enemy hijacks our own voice and we mistake his voice for ours. What shall I do? I will tear down the barn. I will build larger ones. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said... You fool. God will interrupt your self-talk and say the thing that will get your attention. So if him calling you a fool gets your attention, that gets my attention because I'm like, no, I'm not. Whose voice was that? I am not a fool. I am a scholar and I am mature. Some of you, if he called you a fool, you'd be like, yeah, I know. So he might say, hey, blessed and highly favored of the Lord, like he said to Mary. And she's like, who are you talking to? Like Sheena, when I said to Sheena, the best voice in the world is about to speak. Sheena was like, who is here? See, he knows Mary is likely to believe negative things in her self-talk. So he approaches her and says, highly favored one. And she's like, that wasn't me, because I don't say that stuff about myself. Some of us, he'll say, you fool, because we'll say, that wasn't me. 
I don't say that stuff about myself. He will say to you something that will interrupt the flow of your self-talk. And you will know it wasn't you, it has to be him. Because I don't talk to myself that way. What does David say in the psalm? Psalm 10, verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And we say, well, this man wasn't cursing and renouncing the Lord. Yes, he was, because he was, he was blessing and honoring his production. And he was saying to his soul, you can relax now, you have everything. What else does David say in the Psalms? 10, uh, Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, say it with me, bless the Lord and bless his holy name. He doesn't say, soul, stay just the way you are. You can rest. He says, I command my soul to bless the Lord. Look at what else it says as, as David goes on. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are the benefits that David's talking about? He forgives all your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth, even in old age, is renewed the way that an eagle rises up from the ground. David's building large barns, not for money, but for mercy, grace, and truth. That's how you pray. You don't say to your soul, soul, you're worthless, or soul, you can rest. You command your soul to bless the Lord because your soul will do whatever you tell it to. Jesus says to the man, you're going to die tonight. Look at those barns. And the guy's like, I know, look at how, look at the side. They're filled too, you know. She's like, really? That's amazing. You can get a lot of stuff with that. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, you know, you can, I'm going to think of getting a property over, you know, in Bermuda. I'm looking at you, Ron. Bermuda, you know. You got a pro couple properties, maybe a lake house. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, that's cool. Oh, yeah, one more thing. You're going to breathe your last tonight. Have a good night. And Jesus says, when you die... Who's this going to belong to? And there was no one. Because when we live in self-talk, we slowly divorce ourselves from all relationships. I don't need the people who say good things about me because I can say them for myself. I don't need the people who say bad things about me because I'm already saying good things for myself. And all of a sudden, when we're not in a community of prayer, we end up maybe blessed and no one to share the blessing with. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice, now that he's gotten rich, he is now isolated. What must, you know, I... When I pray for you, I don't say, God, what do I have to do to be a good pastor? I already know the answer to that. Your mercy and grace, that's it. <laughs> what I say is, Lord, what can we do to bring eternal life to the community around us? What can we do to bring eternal life. So much of evangelical Christian culture, when you listen to the sermons, when you listen very carefully to the implied theology, it's all about you, the individual. How do I live my best life now? Like changing one of Theo's diapers. <clears throat> I love that Frankie just laughed at that. <laughs> what can I do? Man, American Christianity would have said to the rich young ruler, we got, we got books for you, dude. Any, pick them. Books on grace. Jesus says, here's what you can do. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the, in other words, get yourself into somebody else's life. You've become an individual. Whose will these be? Give them to the poor. 
It wasn't so much Jesus saying, get rid of what you have, as much as it was Jesus saying, you have isolated yourself from the people who need you the most. Go to them and bless them. Don't build bigger barns. Keep the small ones you have. And when God gives you too much, that's what we call overflow. How many have prayed, I've got a river of life flowing out of me? Not if you build bigger barns, you don't. It keeps staying in you if you keep building bigger barns. I want the joy of the Lord to flow into my life. I want the joy of the Lord to flow out of my life. But if I keep building bigger barns for his joy, for my value, for my production, for my money, for my talent, God, you know, if I obey you with a little bit of talent, maybe you'll give me tons of talent. We shouldn't want bigger barns. We should want decent-sized barns that God can overflow so that people standing around, I'm going to make some people mad, so that people standing around, idle all day, not working, could all of a sudden have blessing fall on them, yes, but they didn't work hard for it. So what? When they taste and see that the Lord is good, they're going to want to say, I want that flowing out of me too. If we keep building bigger barns, we will never have overflow. We won't. God wants to give you more than he wants you to keep. Time-wise, talent-wise, treasure-wise, wisdom-wise, (laughs) wisdom-wise. Patience, kindness, he wants them overflowing, and yes, money and stuff too, he wants overflowing. Now we can have another sermon about what happens when you're being faithful and you lack, and we can talk about justice, and that, that's there That's not today, but that is there, and I'm not skipping over that. There is a whole nother sermon to talk about what happens when you're the ones who have small barns and they're not even half full. That's there. So please don't think I'm skipping it, but we're going to stay on task for today. Today we're talking about how to handle blessing. We should want so much blessing that we don't build bigger barns, that the blessing blows the roof off the barns we have, and people who didn't work for the blessings that we have get them anyway. Because those blessings will bring healing to their life. And then they will want a river of life flowing out of them too. Listen to this. uh, This is a quote from one of the devotionals I read. Uh, This was talking about the Hosea text for today that we didn't preach on. But I close with this. It says, in this first passage of the week, Hosea reflects on the beginning of the kingdom of Israel when the people were first called out of Egypt. The uncertainty of not knowing what the future held for them, combined with the challenge of the wilderness, caused the people to turn away from the invisible God of the universe to the tangible gods made of wood, stone, and gold. Uncertainty does this to us. Our anxiety wells up and makes us grasp onto things that seem solid but are unhelpful. So, first, because there's something about that I very much disagree with. So before you say amen, just wait. I agree with this, that uncertainty mixed with challenge is the breeding ground for idolatry. When your life could go one of two ways, and you're challenged, and you're in survival mode, and it's uncertain, that's when we hold on to things and we turn them into gods as opposed to things. It's when we hold on to our money. It's when we hold on to our pride. It's when we hold on to our, our talents. It's when we hold on to our relational equity in somebody else's life. It's when we hold on to people and possess them and hold them and don't let them be themselves. That's when we do those things. That's true, and that I agree with. Uncertainty plus challenge is where idolatry happens. But there's something I don't agree with here. It's the very last line. 
Anxiety wells up and makes us grasp onto things that seem solid but are unhelpful. There's a better way to say that. Those things that we grab onto, they are helpful. That's why they make good idols. Well, pastor, people, you know, idolize drugs. They're not helpful. No, but that initial numbness is. That's why it can go too far. TV is helpful. It can go too far. Your phone is helpful. It can go too far. Social media is not helpful. (laughs) Social media is helpful, but it can go too far. Oh, man, it's, you, everybody's lucky it's 1141 because I almost just went on a tangent about social media again. Here's the thing. Ask, that he just said straw is not helpful. Ask the Israelites if straw would have been helpful when Pharaoh was asking him to make bricks without straw. What's unhelpful is not the item. Money is helpful. Look at the person next to you and say money, money. is helpful. Please believe me when I tell you, money is helpful. There's a reason why it's great when you have it and it hurts when you don't, okay? But when it's unhelpful is when we take what we have, the helpful things that we have, and we use them to make life happen for us the way we want to and not life happen for somebody else the way they need it to. That's when it becomes unhelpful, When your life is going well and you take the wellness of your life and keep reinvesting it back into your life so that your life keeps going super well and no one else is being blessed by it and God says, you had a great week. Yes, I did. It was so awesome. I know. You took the kids out. It was great. You were patient all week. Thank you, God. Oh, before I leave, Bill, one more question. Uh, Who, besides everybody in your home, who else benefited from your good week? Jesus, please go. Go! That last question. He's like Columbo. One more thing. Oh, come on. That was for you, Dad. Columbo. Greed is not wanting more. It's just wanting what you have to yourself. It's not wanting more. It's just wanting what you have to keep working for you. It all comes back to the two brothers. When Jesus, when that guy yells out, we can stand to our feet this morning. We're done. When that man yells out, tell my brother to divide the inheritance, Jesus says, man, who made you judge? Who made me judge, arbiter? Whatever. When he says man, he uses the Greek word, for Adam. He says, Adam, I see you. Adam, I remember when you were saying my wife made me do it (laughs) way back in the garden. He sensed the spirit of Adam in this person, and he said, I'm not here to make you right over against the person who's wronging you. Salem, this is challenging, but listen. I'm not here to make you right to prove to the other person how wrong they are. I'm here to make you right in such a way that your life makes the person who's wronging you's life right. I'm here to make you right in such a way that the godly spirit in you is more contagious than COVID and monkeypox ever could be. God wants you to be right. If you're being wronged in a situation, he wants you to be made whole, but he wants your wholeness to be the kind of wholeness that overflows into somebody else's life. Listen, we got like a a real six-figure a couple times over, you know, uh, water that flowed into our building down there. You don't need to be near a person who's hurting you for your life to overflow in their life. Want how I know this? Because water flowed from one end of the building all the way upstairs into another end. The water climbed the stairs. How did it go upstairs? The water got everywhere. 
So even if somebody's hurting you, even if you can't be around them anymore, when God makes you whole, you don't need to be in proximity. Your wholeness can still overflow. Water gets everywhere. It gets everywhere. So again, I'm not saying get banged around because it's going to heal the other person. I'm saying do what you need to do to be safe and whole. But just know that God wants to make you whole in such a way that your life overflows. And he doesn't want you building bigger barns. He doesn't want you building a bigger bank account. He doesn't want you to, to, to just be able to contain everything he's doing for you. He wants you not to be able to contain it. He wants you to have what you need to live the life he's called you to live, which is different than the life he's called me to live, which is different than the life he's called Ron to live, and so on and so forth. Some of us, we might be called to live a more elaborate life and deal with the challenges that come with that. Some of us may be called to live a more humble life and deal with the blessings and challenges that come with that. All right, so when we compare ourselves one to another, he says, foolishness. But whatever you're called to do, and please don't sit there and be like, I know, my life is the life that's called to be rich. Everybody says that. That's self-talk. It'll work out for you if that's what's supposed to happen. It'll work out for you better than you're working if that's what's supposed to happen. If you're supposed to live a life of wealth, it'll find you. You don't even have to try to focus on it. You'll, You'll get there. So just give that over to the Lord. But whatever he has in your life right now, ask for a little more so it overflows. So that you have what you need and you're willing to live in simplicity so that someone else can get doused with your blessings. It stinks. No one wants that. We're all going to sit here and be like, yeah, pastor, amen, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm not happy with this. I don't know about you. Let me be real. I want the bigger barns. Thank you very much. Showcase showdown. I'm the guy who bids $1 because everyone else is overbidding. I got this. Let's not do it. He's going to teach you restraint. He's going to teach you humility. He's going to teach you contentment. He's going to teach you to live within your means so that when he gives you a little more and it falls all over the place, you don't need to gobble it up and build something bigger. You can just offer it. Like I've said to you since I started pastoring here, if your stuff is there to be given, no one can rob you. No one can hijack your time if your time is being offered. No one can steal your goods if your goods are being offered. What does it say in Hebrews? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property knowing that you had a greater, more lasting inheritance in Christ. Imagine 10 of us actually believe that. Do you know how much less stress would be in our life if we felt like we didn't have to build bigger barns or protect what we have? So much of our anxiety is protecting our blessings. Thank you, John. All right. (laughs) Let's come to the table. I digress. I've never finished a sermon in my life. I've just said, until next week. There's no such thing as a conclusion. Jesus is the only person to truly be full of everything that we need to be full with. And on the night he was betrayed, he let the roof and the barn walls be smashed to pieces so that everything that he ever worked for, everything that he ever had with the Father, the eternal life of God burst forth on the cross and everything that was his poured into our life. Everything. Everything. On the night when he was betrayed, he said, my body, like barn walls, is broken and everything in me, life, blood and water, life, is being poured out for you. This is my blood spilled. This is my flesh torn. Because love doesn't want what it has in itself to be stored. It wants it flooding everywhere. And so he gave us this meal. This meal is what flows out of the life of Christ. His life. Holy Spirit, I pray this week 
that we would have even a few minutes of clarity on this and understand what it's like to say, how can my life freely spill over into somebody else's life? If my life ended today, I want to know that what I have will belong to somebody else. I want to know that people are connected to my life in such a way where those things that I've worked for can freely be given to somebody else. So, Father God, I pray, first of all, that you forgive me of the sin of wanting other people to earn what I feel I've earned. I pray that you just tear that thought down. You have freely given, so give me the heart to want to freely give. I pray that you forgive all of us for building walls that are so high, barns that are gigantic, to keep ourselves from having to see, even to see need so that we can enjoy our stuff more. I pray that we, the windows of heaven, would be open and we would see the poor. You know, Salem, I actually feel like the Holy Spirit is saying this right now, that we have prayed that God would open the windows of heaven, and we've only ever seen that as blessing coming into our life. And I pray, Father God, that you would forgive us of only seeing that. He wants the windows of heaven to be open so that we could see the poor sitting outside. He wants the windows of heaven to be open because in heaven, the poor are who's there. The prisoners are who's there. The thirsty and the naked are who's there. He wants the windows of heaven to be open so that we can see what he sees and bless who he's blessing because it's blessing him. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you fall on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And because you're giving us such a gift, I pray that when we leave here, you would descend on our bodies and our lives and make us for the world barns with wide open doors to bless those around us, to heal those around us, to offer our time and our talent and our treasure to those around us. That we would care less about the arbitrary grievances we have and more about the reconciling of people with people. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. As the worship team sings one more time, you're welcome to come from the back to the front. I'll be right here uh, for communion. The ushers have cups if you would rather do it that way. Worship with us one more time. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.